Matinees on Main Street. This is the podcast about the history of the movies. My name is Alan. Now that a number of projectors have appeared in our story, the first film clips they showed surprised the world, much to its delight. Now I want to take a look at why the fledgling movie industry settled in New York City, or New York, New York, as it's officially called. Cinema is worldwide and it now has several homes. Not only Los Angeles, but India and numerous places in Europe, Asia, Australia, South America, the Mideast, and on and on. But why did it first settle in New York? It would seem that London or Paris would have been just as good a place to start. And to a great degree, Paris would have made much more sense. So I'll discuss the logistics that the movies faced at this time, as well as take a look at New York, New York. At the end of 1896, the movies were still a novelty, although it was one that delighted people in a way that you usually don't see in novelties. Usually, novelties caught people's attention, but that attention usually disappeared rather quickly. So quickly that people who saw them usually didn't tell others about it but the first public exhibitions of movie clips stayed in the minds of the people. They mentioned it to others, and they came back for repeated showings. In a strange kind of comparison, this was what it was like when the first Star Wars movie came out, only there was no organized national release, marketing toy tie-ins, or groups of young people dressed like Annabelle or Samson. It was just the delightful memory of watching a train charging at you, while you sat in a vaudeville house theater chair. Despite the troubled economy of that time, the 1890s saw quite a share of novelties, most of them quite ephemeral. Of the important ones, bicycles were the most important. They were quite a rage, one that carries on to today, as does the idea of physical fitness, a fad that started during Teddy Roosevelt's generation. The designing of the split skirt allowed women to bike while covering their legs. Both bicycling and fitness in general announced a novelty known as the new woman. It was more of a newspaper term than anything, but it proclaimed the independent woman a decade after she entered the workforce. It was also the first awareness of a type that would be known as the modern woman, although the 1920s preferred to think of her as a flapper. In 1894, the novel Trilby was a major success, and though the book introduced the idea of a Svengali, or the overpowering hypnotic master, the book is now as forgotten as can be these days. Trilby also launched its share of tie-ins, including a men's hat that can still be found today. Vaudeville had its share of novelties, including the notch skirt, which I mentioned a few episodes ago. A theatrical novelty was the running of racehorses on the stage using conveyor belts. This was done as part of a play, and it started at the beginning of the decade, and it made its biggest gallop in the massive theatrical blockbuster Ben-Hur. On its own, the play Ben-Hur was also quite a sensation. 
As of the more forgotten novelties, some conceived the idea of making paint from potatoes, an idea that quickly disappeared. A few edible plants from India also appeared as a culinary novelty for a moment. The rise in electricity as Edison and Westinghouse raced to win the battle to control America's electrical destiny caused a number of cities to replace their horse-drawn trolleys with electrical ones. A push to use cast iron as a replacement for stone in construction of buildings was also underway. Some novelties were quite experimental, others fit a need for the moment. The word novelty itself came from the world of fashion, and as usual, there was a lot of fashion novelties. This included the high-top button shoe, which was a rage for a while. So was the use of fur and dress collars. The most unexplainable fashion idea of the decade was the mutton sleeves. More than anything, it explains the growing consumerism of fashion and the cheap cost of materials at the time. While it wasn't the most ridiculous concept ever, it was certainly the most eccentric, as the upper portions of woman's sleeves on her blouse had suddenly exploded in balloons of fabric. If you don't know what they are, look up mutton sleeves in Wikipedia. You'll recognize them as vintage late 19th century fashion. Most of these novelties had an I want impact at the moment, but very few of them had the emotional impact that the motion pictures did. It's hard to figure out what it was that made these audiences so excited over the movies. In a way, it seems that it was easier to explain the complicated mechanics of a movie projector than it was to understand why the audiences thrilled over film clips of moving trains or people at the beach. I wonder if the audiences even knew. Concepts of psychology were just beginning to be popularized and were beyond the knowing of the people of the 1890s. At the same time, journalists and the public in general were all fumbling over what to call this thing that we think of as the first moving pictures. And much of this was defined by the experience of the journalists as well as the audience. These things were referred to as images, or pictures, or photographs, and they either moved or were in motion, or were living or were animated. Pick one from each group, and you'll find someone's description of an exhibition. Through the end of the century, you can see the naming trends as the industry and the public start to define this new concept. In the first few years, the process referred to them as moving pictures or living pictures. The use of that second term makes things quite confusing. At the time, there was a popular fad known as living pictures. This involved groups of people posing in the style of a famous painting, whether it was a simple portrait or, more often, a large historical or religious painting. Usually, these staged posings came complete with the props and costuming of the painting, and when possible, a reproduction of the background. By 1896, the public was growing weary of these living tableaus, as they were also called. Why some writers also chose to refer to the first film clips as living pictures is beyond me. Maybe it was that sense of people within a group, or because the phrase also suggested the sense of being alive or moving 
as opposed to the stillness of a photograph. As the living picture novelty started to fade away, so did the use of the term for the movie clips. In its place, more and more people started calling them moving pictures. Even motion pictures was used on occasion. Now that I put some of these stray details about the first wave of movies to rest, it's time to deal with the big geographical question. Why did the biggest city in New York State become the first major home of the movies? In a way, New York became the home of the infant moving picture industry makes sense. But there were other choices. Among the cities involved with the creation of the early cinema, New York was the biggest, and it was home to both Thomas Edison and the American entertainment industry. And although London and Paris were both smaller than the Big Apple at that time, they were both capable of becoming the first home for cinema. Of the three, London had the biggest problem. At the time, the city was unwilling to put its money where its heart was. While the British public was falling in love with moving pictures at a time when the movie craze was just gossip in America, investor interest was very slight, and no one involved seemed to care. Unlike America, where a naive sense of wildcat investing consumed a good portion of the people who had money, in London, money was invested for the long term. To invest meant that you were helping to make Great Britain great. The industries that financed the empire that the sun did not set on deserved your investment money much more than did entertainment startups. Like theater and music halls, the movies were expected to pay their own way. Theatrical impresarios started small and grew according to their talents. It seems that the movie industry was expected to handle it the same way. Had investors been more willing to support the first movie men, like Robert Paul and Cecil Hepworth, who knows how the history of the movies would have gone. On the other hand, the cinema did find a home in France, and probably the people of Europe thought of Paris as the capital of the movies. It may have been that Europe saw New York as simply the home of Thomas Edison. But as New York stumbled out of its economic struggles and its vaudeville audiences sat enchanted as they watched those first moving images, France was already eyeing New York and America as a potential market for their movie machines, while Edison and New York only gave Europe a passing glance. The importance of New York lies with both its geography and with America's obsession with making money. I suppose that almost everyone knows that the New York City of Manhattan is both a city and an island. It's close to 13 miles long and is close to 23 square miles in size. That's actually pretty small for a world-class city. Currently, the city of Chicago has a lot more ground at 234 square miles, and the city of Los Angeles is more than double that at 503 square miles. Of course, it was during this time that Manhattan Island incorporated into Greater New York by joining with Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, and Staten Island, which increased its size to 322 square miles. All five of these boroughs had their business districts, 
but it was Manhattan where everyone wanted to succeed. The island was first colonized by the Dutch in the 1620s, and those Dutchmen built a fort on the southern tip of Manhattan as a way to protect their grand estates upriver in the Albany area from attack by English, French, and Spanish raiders. After a series of small wars in the middle part of the 1600s, England took over the fort as well as the colony that was growing around it. The fort's main wall, which separated the fort from the rest of the island, was located at what would be obviously named Wall Street. North of there, settlers and Native Americans roamed, and over time, the New York colony slowly expanded northward. At the same time, locals traveled across the Hudson River to the west and across the East River to the east and established colonies in both places. New York's laid out on a grid, as are most American cities. What I didn't know until I used Google Maps to explore the city is that the New York grid is not exactly on a north-south axis. Instead, it tilts significantly to the northeast and southwest almost like old Los Angeles. This is due to the position of the island. But for explanation's sake, and because most books of New York just think of it as north and south, east and west, I'll stick to the tried and true and ignore that tilt. Manhattan's attitude towards money was either a gift or a curse given to the community by the Dutch colonists and its consumerist society. At the time, the Netherlands was probably the wealthiest country in the world, and the British who settled in Manhattan had none of the religious or moral scruples found in New England. Manhattan's zeal for money made the city a questionable ally in both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. After all, money always came first. The city grew by leaps and bounds during the 1800s as its business moved northward and even slipped over into its sister cities. In the 1870s, the theater district moved into the Union Park area. For anyone not aware of the layout of Manhattan, the long skinny island's main drags run north and south and are referred to as avenues such as Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue. The east-west roads, which only go a few miles across the island, are streets, and there are probably around 200 of them, with most of them being consecutively numbered. Of course, there are exceptions on the south end, like Wall Street, but the biggest exception of all is Broadway, which starts at Madison Garden Park and kind of meanders towards True North, which slowly takes it to the west side of the island. Union Park is located between Broadway and 4th Avenue and between 14th Street and 17th Street. The immediate neighborhood had previously been wealthy and residential, but by the 1870s the rich were moving out and their old mansions were growing wary. At the same time, the theater district started to move in. The district was renamed the Rialto, a name borrowed from Venice, Italy. The Academy of Music and Wallach's Theater led the way for a small number of vaudeville houses and high-end entertainment establishments to settle there. This northward trend was pushed by the expanding number of garment workers that were catering to the 19th century woman. 
This was a very expansive market that was causing the American economy to mushroom after the Civil War. Public transportation was bringing in women to shop from all over the New York City area, and this business increased significantly as women started to work outside of the home. The expanding number of garment makers forced other businesses northward. Both the area's department stores and the local entertainments were torn between the business of the working woman and the wealthier non-working woman. Some entertainments catered to the women who worked and the massive lunchtime crowds they provided. This would eventually include the Nickelodeons when they arrived at the beginning of the 20th century. Some of the higher-class entertainments moved farther north. A map of the theaters along Broadway at this time showed that the entertainments were established primarily in the streets of the 30s and the 40s. There were also theaters established in more out-of-the-way places, such as in the Bowery, which had once been a home to theater, and up in Harlem, which was still a wealthy Dutch community at that time. I mentioned a bit about the vaudeville houses in an earlier episode, and almost all of them were down on the south end of Broadway in the Union Square area. Tony Pastors was there. So was the Star Theater. A novelty movie would be made of its demolition in 1901. That should suggest the state of some of these older theaters. Even Coster and Biles, which was a lot farther up Broadway on 34th Street, would soon be raised for Macy's main and still standing department store. Proctor's was in this area also. It was run by Fred Proctor until Keith and Albie were to take it over in a few years. Remember Keith and Albie, the men who started continuously running vaudeville? Proctor's, which was their second theater in Manhattan, was on 23rd Street. Their first theater, the new Union Square Theater on 14th Street, was already a success. These vaudeville houses were just off of Broadway. Another important theater in the history of the movies that was in this area was the Eden Musée on 23rd Street, a block away from Proctor's. I'll talk about it more in later podcasts, but it was a novelty museum which would become one of the dedicated homes of the movies before the Nickelodeon years started up. The point of all of this is that the cheap entertainment on the south side of Manhattan was not that far from the ferry port that came from New Jersey. As a walk, it was only a little more than a mile. Even Hoyt's Theater, which had a run of the popular Milk, White, and Flag musical in 1895, was not that far away. But these older theaters were in danger of newer business strategies, as well as offers of buyouts and teardowns, all in the name of a newer and more modern New York. By the time of the Nickelodeon era, many of these older vaudeville houses would be gone, and the newer vaudeville houses would be farther up Broadway, mixing with the theaters, lyceums, opera houses, and department stores. While these old entertainment businesses gave the first projectors a great place to get started, none of this would have happened except that Thomas Edison had established his business just outside of the Big Apple. Edison was a Midwesterner, but he based his business in suburban New Jersey simply to service all of the major companies who had headquarters in New York. New York was the head of American finance. 
it was also the place where American entertainment and American transportation established its headquarters. While it was difficult to get train traffic into Manhattan, the course of American business ran so thoroughly through the island that transportation hubs were set up on the edges of New York City until the time came when tunnels and stations could be established in Manhattan. American business required its suppliers and distributors to be based around New York, and that included inventors like Thomas Edison. The vaudeville circuits and the theatrical tours also used the trains that stopped at those river-edge stations, and as the theater chains and vaudeville booking agencies spread their tentacles out from New York to other places, the projectors that each of these organizations favored would travel to other cities. In 1897, there were three important businesses with movie-making machines in America. The Edison Company, the Mutoscope Biograph Group, and the Lumieres. Any of the others were either struggling to stay alive or just getting started. Of the three, Edison and the Mutoscope Biograph were American companies, and both of them were based in the New York City area. At the time, the only film studios were among these two companies. The Edison Company still had its Black Mariah studio out in New Jersey, but it was already falling into disrepair. After Dixon left, there had been a lack of filmmaking at the plant, and once the Lumiere's movies became popular, attempts were made to take a modified version of the Edison camera out of the studio in order to capture their own movies. Unfortunately, this led to a complete disregard of the Black Mariah. I've read conflicting stories about an attempt to film dancer Loie Fuller at the studio, and that she refused to do so due to the condition of the studio and its lack of heat. Whether the Edison people really did attempt this project or not, it does suggest the trouble they had with this studio. The only other company with a studio at this time was Mutoscope Biograph. Their stage was assembled on the roof of what was known as the Hackett Carhartt Building and would later be known as the Roosevelt Building. This was on Broadway and 13th Street near Union Square. The company had their offices in the building, and for the next several years, Biograph's home would be there. Close to a decade later, the company would move to another building a few blocks away. That would be the historic 11 East 14th Street building. Remarkably, the Roosevelt building is still standing. It's been well taken care of, and the rumor has it that the tracking system that Dixon had installed for the first studio may still be up on the roof. At least it looks that way from Google Maps. There was one studio that predated Dixon's Mutoscope studio, and that was the one that the Lathams had built for the Griffo-Bernard fight. It, too, was built upon a roof. This one was on a previous version of the Madison Square Garden facility. The roof held a number of places, including a private residence for its brilliant architect, Stanford White as well as what appears to be some kind of a beer garden or outdoor entertainment restaurant, as well as a high-end restaurant. This is the restaurant where White would be murdered, leading to an infamous murder trial. I'll talk about that much later, as it's launched a number of movies. Slowly, 
other studios appeared in New York City. For a time, Vitagraph would have its studio in the far southern end of Manhattan on Nassau Street. But it wouldn't be until the flood of film companies arrived after the Big Bang of the Nickelodeon. It was at that time that New York City started to breed film companies like rabbits. By that time, Imp, or the Independent Film Company, which is one of the most important of the indie companies, had its office on 11th Avenue on the west side, with its studio across the Hudson at Fort Lee in New Jersey. This would be a pattern for a number of the independents. When Pathé Frères first arrived in New York, they settled in an office on 23rd Street before moving to a larger office on 25th. Just like all the other French film companies opening up in New York, Pathé also preferred to work in New Jersey. Calum had an office on 24th Street, but they didn't even have a studio and preferred their movie crews to film on location, or someplace representative of that location. During the good weather, their crews worked in the New York area, and each winter they traveled to places like Jacksonville, Florida, where they did have a studio, or even Europe. This process made the studio's work rather unique. Other studios did develop from time to time, and like all businesses in New York, the process drifted north. Metro Pictures built a rooftop studio on 61st Street, and the Talmadge sisters had a studio on 48th Street. William Randolph Hearst built his cinematic empire, devoted to Marion Davies, up in Harlem between 126th and 127th Streets. But for many studios, Manhattan was just too expensive, so they drifted to the edge of town where they could build large spaces on land that was much more inexpensive, leading to studios in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Fort Lee in New Jersey, and eventually on Long Island. Later, low costs and large spaces would push the West Coast studios out of Los Angeles and into neighboring towns in the north, such as Hollywood, Burbank, and Pasadena. New York would remain the home of the American film industry until the end of World War I. By then, it was obvious that much of the industry had moved to Los Angeles. Ironically, many of the technicians and actors who worked in the New York film industry didn't want to go to the West Coast, and many of them attempted to hold on to their careers in New York as long as possible. Both Hearst and Davies and the Talmadge sisters, along with their brother-in-law, Buster Keaton, stayed in New York making movies, although they were fighting against the current. Eventually, most of them gave in. Ironically, it wasn't the New York crowd that established California as the industry's new home. That honor falls on the shoulders of the film companies that started to appear in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. So next time, we'll leave this tour of the Big Apple and head to the Windy City and look at how the beginnings of Chicago's film industry started. Thanks for listening and hope you come back next time. Thank you.